All right, you guys, well, you'll need your Bible tonight, either a Bible or your phone. If you, have, if you want to use the app on your phone, that's fine, too. As an aside here, and I mentioned this, that's not really not an aside, I guess, because the, the topic that we have tonight is concerning the Word of God. Question four is dealing with that. But, um, you know, on the way over here, I was asking my boys if they had their Bibles because we'll need it. And they were like, well, why, Dad? I, you know, there's Bibles at the church they could use. Usually uh, verses are on the screen as well, too. I mean, I probably, I'm not known for that, at least, if verses on the screen. But we have Bibles here. And say, why? And it's almost this, uh, it's almost a bl- blessing and a curse at the same time that, they, that we have such easy access to God's Word here in the United States. I mean, how many of us even have more than one Bible in our house? I, I in my office, I probably have seven or eight at least uh, different um, you know, versions in my house. There's equally as many in it. That's just for me personally. I mean, if you count my other family members, they all have theirs, one or two or so each. But it's just so easily readily acceptable that we just sometimes don't hold it in the regard that we should, how privileged we are to have it. I remember seeing some years ago a video of a um, a tribe. I, don't, I can't remember the, the tribe that was receiving it. Was it Papua New Guinea? They, uh, they are getting the word translated in their own language. And so it comes in, the plane lands on this, you know, little dirt runway, and the, the villages come to see it, and they, when they, the, the boxes are coming down, the cases of these Bibles in their own original language are coming off the plane, they are weeping, they are singing and dancing, you know, kissing the box, I and mean, they're just so happy to have the word of God in their hand. And, uh, you know, we should have that same sort of reverent and thankfulness attitude about it as well, too. Even though it's so it's so available to us here, it's such a blessing that it's so available, so easily accessible. But let's not forget what a great joy it is to be able to have it, what a great privilege it is to have. Not everybody has that. And we're going to get into it tonight. Uh, we're not going to be turning as many pages in it as we have been in previous uh, lessons to the catechism. This catechism question actually only lists two text uh, as proof text, and we'll get to those eventually, but we will uh, certainly be in it. Uh, Before we get um, to the word together to to see what the catechism says about it, to test what the word says about this catechism question, let's take a look at what the catechism question itself says. It's on page 44 of that booklet that we passed out, one to each family. If you have that with you, you can look at it there, or the question itself is on the note sheet, the outline that I made available for you as well. Question four says, what is the word of God? The answer is the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God and the only certain rule of faith and obedience. And then it lists 2 Timothy 3.16 and Ephesians 2.20 there as proofs for for the answer. So the fourth question in the catechism is what we have in view, and it's one that seems to be on the surface answered simply as it is stated, and then we should be able to move on. I mean, we here at First Family Church, at least, uh, and even among faithful Christians anywhere, this is a question and answer that won't receive a lot of pushback, I think, and I hope at least. It's one that I know our church won't have a lot of pushback against, but since it is that we live in a culture that was certainly pushed back against it, as Brother Ross was mentioning even in his uh, prayer request earlier tonight, this simple Q&A needs to have a good amount of time delivered to what it's saying, and actually maybe even more time than we could get into tonight. We're just going to be really scratching the surface on some of the things that we could be talking about when it comes to what this Q&A is actually implying and teaching and defending. 
And it's not just our culture that would push back against this question and answer. It's by the grace of God that we would happily and readily affirm it, of course. But this question is dealing with a, a primary matter concerning any heresy that has ever come against the church. Uh, the answer that we have in question four is ultimately the issue that all of the prophets in the Old Testament within the Old Covenant had to contend with when people didn't believe their words. This is the issue that ultimately, or that was also confronting Jesus during his ministry on the earth. When people denied that he was who he said he was, and when people didn't attribute his miracles properly, it's ultimately disagreeing with what question four is affirming. A denial of what question and answer four puts forth is at the heart of the centuries-long slide into apostasy and heresy that the Roman Catholic Church is guilty of. What it teaches, though, is what was recaptured by and large on a grand scale in the Protestant Reformation. And remember, these catechisms that we're looking at are kind of based out of that era, the Protestant Reformation and what came from that. You remember those pillars of the Protestant Reformation? The five solas, those five alone statements, one of them is by scripture alone, right? But it's not as if this doctrine of the word of God has been free from attack since then. Today, the greatest church or the greatest threat from within the, the church is concerning this very matter. A progressive Christianity, which is rampant, this you know denial of what God's word says, has an ally in critical race theory and woke Christianity, in which, by the way, neither of those are actually versions of Christianity. They are all new religions altogether. Uh, they, can, they can all, progressive Christianity, woke Christianity, whatever you want to call it, they can all really be traced to having their errors found in disagreeing with what Q&A number four is wanting to teach. So my point is that in every century, decade, year, Every point of time in this present evil age, what this Q&A is affirming and defending will be under attack. So it's good, it is proper that the Catechism addresses this matter early on as it does. It's foundational to everything else that we're going to be learning in the Catechism, what the Catechism is also teaching. And remember uh, what I mentioned in the introduction to the series to the Catechism, the, the Baptist Catechism is by and large is approaching these questions and these answers in a systematic format. The questions are building off of each other so that you'll be able to answer uh, following questions with this knowledge already received. In other words, you know, each, each question is building off of the previously established truth and propositions. So that's why Brother Ross last week, when he was teaching on question three, he recapped question one and question two because understanding what those things were teaching poured right into understanding question three. So I won't read those two for us at the, this evening, but it's helpful for us to think of, of question three as we move into question four. Then actually the next two questions in the catechism are going to be built off of question four specifically. Uh, question five and six are may all men make use of the Holy Scriptures? And then number six is what things are chiefly contained in the Holy Scriptures? So you see how our question tonight is setting us up to be able to answer those more comprehensively. So question three, though is pertinent again to what we're going to be thinking about tonight. So let me repeat that for us. Question three was, how may we know there is a God? And the answer given was, the light of nature and man and the works of God plainly declare there is a God, but his word and spirit only do fully and effectually for the salvation of sinners. So I won't 
I won't spend a whole lot of time here because Brother Ross did a good, to- a good job with it last week. If you missed that, you can find it on our website, like Pastor Nick was mentioning, through the Podbean link or through the Apple um, podcasting app. Uh, but what question three is teaching in light of question four, which we're considering tonight, is what theologians have historically called uh, the two books of God. There are, there are two books of God by which mankind may know God. And these books aren't equal by any means. And one of them technically isn't actually a book, but these are just nice little categories that we speak in. So the first book is nature itself. It's the created order. It is, or, or they are, the works of God that plainly declare there is a God, which is part of the answer of question three, or answer three. And then also the light of nature in man testifies to this, which also question three also affirms. And that, of course, is contrasted to what uh, question three also says that the word in the, the word in the spirit. And of course, we understand that we have the word, we have the scriptures by the spirit. Right? We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. But remember what our catechism question for tonight is and what it says about the word, what it says about the scriptures. It says that the holy scriptures, the Old and New Testament, are the word of God and the only certain rule of faith and obedience. Well, what I want to think of before we consider what the catechism answer is declaring is why the light of nature in man, this concept that is discussed in question three, isn't sufficient. Right? Because question four is saying the word of God is the only sufficient. But why isn't the light of nature in man sufficient? How come the Holy Scriptures are the only certain rule of faith and obedience? How come the light of nature in man doesn't help? And I think understanding this will help us to know why question four says what it says and also help us to think covenantly about these things as well. Our our God is a covenant-making and keeping God. And any time we can think of doctrine in light of covenants, it helps us to kind of understand more of the general direction and purpose in Scripture. I mean, all of us in here tonight who are saved are members of the new covenant. We are all in a covenant with God based off of the merits of Christ, the works that Christ has done to purchase us and to redeem us so we could be saved. So when, why are there, so the question to be thinking of is why are the Holy Scriptures the only certain rule of faith and obedience? And it's because mankind is not able to come to faith. We're not able to know the rule of the Lord. We're not able to know obedience. All the things that the Catechism says, principally because the light of nature that is in us is not capable of doing those things. So then what exactly is the light of nature in man? Nature here isn't meaning the outdoors. We're not thinking camping trips here. What is meant by nature is human nature. It it is then that which is evident by natural reason. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. The light of nature is that God-given, image-bearing responsibility that mankind has with the needed faculties to successfully bear the divine image. So it includes then things like our conscience, our will, those things you can't like touch and grab, right? You can't you can't draw, I can't say, hey, draw me a picture of your conscience. You wouldn't be able to do that, right? It's, it's not a substantial thing, but it exists. And then also that which is physical about us too. Uh, all of that consists in what the catechism calls the light of nature, that which God has given to us in creation. But there's, of course, a problem that must be addressed. 
So I'll just quote at length here a work from the Presbyterians in 1646 by the, the London Prov uh, Provincial Assembly called The Divine Right of Church Government. It's a, it's a book, it's a, a booklet that was produced by a number of different pastors right around the time that our um, catechism was produced as well, too. Another multi-pastor document. And the idea is with this divine right of church government, they would pass it around to the local churches to bless the other churches, to help everybody be in agreement, to think about these complex theological uh, issues. So they break down the light of nature into two main parts, two parts that will help us to see why question four says what it says. So first off, and there's a link on your outline for it, too, if you wanted to go look at uh, what this article says on the light of nature in full, because I'm just going to quote a little bit of it. So the first point is the light of nature as it was in man before the fall. So it says, and so it was that the image and similitude of God in which man was at first created, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, or at least part of that image, which is the image of God in light of nature, was concreted with man and was perfect, viz, so perfect as the sphere of humanity and state of innocency did require, there was no sinful darkness crookedness or imperfection in it and whatever so was evident by or consonant to this pure and perfect light of nature and either theory or practice was doubtless of divine right because corresponded to that divine law of god's image naturally engraved in adam's heart but then it says but man being lapsed this will not not be now our question as it is not our case so that's not exactly clear i know but <laughs> So to, to, to sum it up, okay, in other words, before the fall, before man was lapsed, right? That's, that's a way of saying that mankind has fallen in sin. Man has lapsed. Before Adam sinned, this light of nature in mankind would know God's law. Mankind in his humanity before the fall, in his human nature, could live by rule, by faith, and in obedience. The Holy Scriptures didn't even exist at that point for Adam, right? When he was in the garden, he didn't have a book to go to and say, oh, this is, you know, what has been gone for me. He didn't have that. But he was created in uprightness and righteousness and goodness. He wasn't saved. We don't say properly that Adam was saved because he didn't have to be saved from anything, right? He was created in righteousness and goodness. And so the light of nature in him was able to discern the will of God properly. But his position, of course, wasn't the greatest, it wasn't the most desirable, because he was able to fall. And certainly it was part of God's will for that to happen, and so that the last Adam, Christ, may come, and that we in him may be secure in the God-man, Christ Jesus. Uh, so when we think about, you know, what is being restored in salvation, it's actually we're being restored to something better than what Adam had in the garden. What Adam had in the garden was great, it was wonderful, it was good, but he could fall. And what we have now in Christ in the new covenant, we can't fall from. Uh, we, nobody is, can take us out of God's hand. Now, of course, mankind didn't stay that way that he was in the garden. Man lapsed, as the quote put it. Adam was in a covenant with God, the covenant of works. And a stipulation of that covenant was that man obeyed God and lived by faith and submit to the rule of God and not eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we know, of course, that he failed in that regard. Had Adam obeyed, he would have inherited eternal life for himself, and he would have been able to eat from the tree of life for all of existence, and he would have inherited eternal life for all of mankind since he represented all of mankind. 
But we fell, but when he fell, we fell in him. When he lapsed, we lapsed as well. And if you hear even the word lapse, I mean, you might start thinking of like the prelapsarian decrees. That's, we'll let John teach on that in a few, <laughs> in a couple of weeks or something. But, um, lapsed is, it's not a term that we say very frequently today, right? But it is, it is a older theological term that helps us think about what uh, happened in the fall. So we fell in him. We are born in sin. We are conceived in sin. Well, what does that mean for the light of nature in us? We'll listen again to the divine right of church government. This is what they put for point two. It's as it is now in man after the fall. So it says the light of nature and the image of God in man is not totally abolished and utterly razzed by the fall. There remain still some relics and fragments thereof, some scintilla, some glimmerings, dawnings, and common principles of light, both touching piety to God and equity to man and sobriety to man's self. We just don't even talk like this anymore. <laughs> they had a way with words. Um, and then it says, as is evident by comparing these places, and he lists off Psalm 19, 1 through 6, Acts 14, 7, 17, 28. 7 to 28. I'm not going to look at all these passages, but again, I put the link to this article from the Divine Right uh, Council on your outline. So if you want to go and visit that later on in your own time, you can look at all these texts and we could talk about them more. Text me or we could call and be interested in doing that. So, so in then after the fall, the light of nature in man is, it's not totally abolished. Mankind are, we're still moral agents. What we what we would say is the law of God isn't on our heart as it was with Adam before the fall. The For those people who aren't saved, for those people who aren't united to Christ, it's the work of the law that is on their heart, Romans 2.15. And so people know morality in the because of the fact that they have been created in the image of God. Now, when we're saved, what does Jeremiah 31 say? It says that, no one wants to teach another. The law of God will be written on our heart. So again, we're, we're, we're redeemed to a state that's even better than what Adam was in the garden. Although for us, it exists and it's already not yet tension where we, where we still are struggling with the sin that we have now, but our glorification is sure. And so when that happens, it'll certainly be a much better state than what Adam was in in the garden. But for the sake of time, I was saying, um, we still need to break down the principles in question four. So we're not going to read all of those texts, but again, you could find them on the website to be worth your time. Again, the point being the light of nature, which still exists in us today after the fall before we are saved is different than what it was in Adam before the fall. Our ability to discern what is the will of God, our ability to know what God desires, though, or through how we were created, is not enough. Our sin clouds our understanding. Speaking about people who aren't united to, to Christ through faith. Everyone knows there is a God, and, and people suppress that truth in their unrighteousness, right? Hey, Raymond. So everyone has an idea of what God requires, but everyone is suppressing that truth in their unrighteousness, in their sin. So mankind is not to be trusted in our fallen condition. We're not to be, we're not to trust our own intuition. We're not to trust our conscience when it comes to trying to figure out what it is that God requires, what it is that God says is the rule of faith and obedience. Uh, we need outside revelation. We need special revelation and to show us what it is that God truly and ultimately requires. We see glimpses as people separated from God, uh, even though we are, you know, 
still, again, made in God's image, people who aren't saved, they see glimpses, but they don't see the fullness of it. And so we can't be left to our own devices. Mankind is not able to know outside of special revelation what God truly and ultimately requires. And so the rest of the section, in the light of nature of man, in the divine right of church government, is really helpful and good as well. Again, I commend you to look at it in your own time. But the point is here is that we by ourselves, because of Adam's transgression and the covenant of works that he was in, we are born unable to truly and completely know the rule of God. We are unable to operate in faith in God, and we are not willing to be obedient outside of God doing a work in us. We can't look to ourselves. We can't look within ourselves. Even though the work of the law is written on our hearts, our sin, the guilt that we have in and from Adam, makes it so that we need help from outside of ourselves. Our, our depravity is total. But God hasn't left us totally in the dark. He has given us special revelation, a second book by which we can know these things. He has given to us his word. But what exactly is the word? We, we know we need help. We know we need special revelation. Our question tonight wants to establish what that is. And so we're going to break it down to two parts. Number one, what is the, I think this is the natural breakdown of the catechism question even. Number one, what is the word of God? And then two on your outline, how is it that the word of God is the only certain rule of faith and obedience. So first off then, what is the word of God? So our catechism answers it in the positive, doesn't it? Uh, we read the Holy Scriptures. It's uh, page 44, Raymond, if you want to look in there. 44. Yeah, page 44. Uh, so we read that the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are, are the word of God. So the catechism positively states the answer to the question, right? Well, sometimes it's helpful to do what's called negative theology. Uh, that doesn't mean, um, by the term negative theology, we mean saying what something isn't, so we can understand what it is. All right? It's it's a long practice way of doing theology, especially when it comes to things that are difficult to sometimes explain because of our limited language and our limited ability to comprehend. You know, we never fully comprehend anything. We apprehend things. Pastor Nick was talking about that some this morning even. For, so for an example, negative theology um, is often in the, used in the realm of discussing theology proper. In other words, those theologies, those doctrines that are concerned with the person of God. So for example, we might say something like, and this would be an example of negative theology, God doesn't change. We know what that means. Or how about there's no evil in God, right? That, that's saying something about God through a negative way, but it's saying something positive and true about God. Or the Trinity is not like H2O. You know, those would be examples of negative theology. I hope you get the point. So think of our catechism question in that light. We might say this. The word of God is not dreams and visions today. Uh, the word of God is not... The word so and so got, or, or so and so comes to you and says, I got a word from the Lord that I just need to show, I need to share it with you. That's, that's not the word of God. And, you know, they just have to tell you, uh, the word of God is not the Apocrypha. The word of God is not the, the Pope speaking ex cathedra. It's not the Book of Mormon. It's not the word of God is not the Quran. It's not the Talmud, that, that Jewish book of law and theology. The word of God is not the sermons we preach. It's not the confessions we subscribe to or the catechisms that we use to help teach it. Those last three things are, are tools that explain and direct us to the word even. Uh, the word of God is not some still small voice in your head. 
unless of course that voice is telling you something that you could apply a chapter and a verse to. Um, the word of God are the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Now, it's a bit complex because at one time, this word did come sometimes in dreams and visions, right? We have Isaiah speaking about this in Isaiah 6, where he has that vision of the throne room. and He says, woe is me, for I am undone. And he, and he sees around the throne these seraphim, and they are worshiping the Lord, and it's a terrifying account. And one of the angels comes to him and hits his lips with a with a coal or an ember, and so you know so that happened in the past that he had this vision, this dream. Uh, how did Moses get to accurately know all of what Genesis says, since everything in that book predates him? Ultimately, revelation from God. Uh, the apostles heard from the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Apostle Paul speaks about being caught up to the third heaven. And when he, he, and he sees sights and he hears things that are not meant to be repeated, John in his revelation, the last book in our Bible, uh, it's received in a vision and this angel continually shows him new things as it develops. So there have been times, of course, when those things were properly said uh, that they are the word of God. And also, too, when words, when God's word is preached and properly handled and faithfully handled, those with, with faith should receive it as actually the word of God, the word of Christ himself, as if it was Christ speaking. And this is why the Apostle Paul can say in Ephesians 2.17, it says, And he, meaning Christ, came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Well, when did Jesus ever go to Ephesus? He didn't, right? But Jesus went to Ephesus in the right preaching, the true preaching of his word. And so, and so in that regard, so it's not just so simple, it's not just black and white is what I'm trying to say. There are ways that we need to think about this that keep us within the realm of biblical orthodoxy. But the matter, and we're only scratching the surface tonight, but if you, if you have questions on this type of stuff, just maybe drop those down. We'll try, like I, like Pastor Nick was saying, we'll try to have time at the end. We'll try to work through some of those if we can. But, what sets apart the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments as the Word of God ultimately is going to be the source of it. And even when we think of those dreams and those visions in Old Testament times, the source of them was God. And there were false ones. Those weren't of God. But what we have today in these 66 books it is sourced from God himself. It's how we are given it. And so look what the catechism cites to make the point. Uh, let's turn to 2 Timothy 3.16. It's perhaps you know a verse that many of us or most of us are probably aware of or familiar with. It's, it's one of those verses that we should all commit to memory, verse 3.16 and verse 17. So the catechism, it's the first verse the catechism cites to make the points that it's wanting to make. And actually, let's, let's start a little bit before that to make this point and tie it to more scripture because, again, we probably all know the memory verse, verse 316, but the context is probably not as lodged in our minds as 316 and 317 are. So let's begin at 14 in chapter 3, actually. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, instructing him in pastoral duties, ministerial duties. And he says, But as for you, so as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. All right, sacred writings, what are those? Goes on to define it. 
which, so these secret writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he puts his cards on the table. All scripture is breathed out by God. He says, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. The scriptures that are breathed out from God are are able, are they're good for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. He's talking about the same thing here. Then he says in verse 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, I mean, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, what word? The sacred writings, the scriptures that he just mentioned. Be ready in season and out of season. And then look what he says. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Almost identically the same things that he said the scriptures were good for, right? Back in verse 16. Remember, the scriptures are breathed out by God, a problem for teaching, for reproof and correction. Here he says, preach the word, the word of God, sacred writings, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So this word, these sacred writings... They are breathed out by God. God breathed theopnusos. It's a a compound word where where the Greek words theos, God, and neo, I blow or I breathe, are joined together to form one word. In the the Greek, the word pneuma is the word that we have for spirit. But interestingly, this word theopnusos is found only in 2 Timothy 3.16. You don't find it anywhere else in Scripture at all. This is the one place that that word is used in talking about Scriptures. And a lot of scholars think that the word was actually created by Paul in order to convey the divine origin of Scripture. It's a fascinating word, really. So why should we know this word? Well, the reason is because I think it invites a person to ponder the the mystery, as I said above, of the Bible being God-breathed. And what the Bible testifies about itself, right? This is the Bible's self-revelation saying that all scripture, which it is scripture, is breathed out by God. And that's really the idea being communicated is that the word is inspired by God. That's what sets it apart from other things. And not inspired in the sense that we might say, like, uh, Jackie played an inspired game of softball this afternoon. You know, that's not what it means. What's being captured is the divine source of the word. That's why it's said to be inspired, because they're from Yahweh. But as we all know, the Bible didn't simply fall from heaven in printed form with gold binding and, and nice you know, glittering pages with nice chapters and verse headings. That's not how we receive it. That's not how God chose to bring his word to us. He chose to be more earthly than that. And the Bible is written by about 40 human authors who lived during a 1,500-year period, beginning with Moses, uh, maybe Job, depending on who you want to say wrote that. A lot of people believe that Moses was the author of this book, Job, as well, too. Um, The Bible is written in two major languages, Hebrew and Greek, with a few portions of the Old Testament in Aramaic. No other book has ever been composed in quite, in quite the same way as the Bible, though. The human authors came from various walks of life. These were real people. Furthermore, people whose specific traits, gifts, motivations, and talents can be seen coming through the, through the pages of Scripture. Now, if you compare Paul 
with Mark and Isaiah, with Amos, for example, you see there's there are different people. They don't all sound the same, yet there is a miraculous unity in their message. And that testifies to its inspiration. So, for example, you could turn over to Second Peter in your Bible. You're in Second Timothy, so just turn over a little bit, get past the letter to the Hebrews. Second Peter 1, 21 says this. Oops, I'm in First Peter. It says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's inspiration. Properly, that's what pastors, theologians, what Christians have called plenary verbal inspiration. Uh, verbal plenary inspiration means that every word found in the Bible is given to us by God, verbal. Everything in the Bible is authoritative, plenary. And every word is divinely directed, it's inspired. That's how Matt Slick defines it. So then, just because a, a certain passage of scripture doesn't begin with the familiar, thus saith the Lord, it doesn't mean that it's not scripture. As the Catechism says, all scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God. They are the words that God has preserved and ordained for us to have today. That's what Second uh, Timothy 3 is, is saying, as well as other texts. Um, in 1978, uh, the scriptures were under attack, as they always have been. Uh, they always are, and unfortunately, as they are often attacked from within, from within the church. That's usually how. That's usually the most dangerous attacks against the church are. They come from within the church. People professing to be Christian, people professing to believe the Bible, but then saying things about it, the faith that are simply not true. And so. What happened was these people who professed to be part of the faith once and for all delivered, delivered for the saints were denying some specific and historic ways that scripture was viewed, specifically inerrancy. And so in 1978, a group of evangelicals assembled and, re- and they met and they discussed the doctrine of scripture and they released what's called the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. It began in 1978. It concluded in 1979. And of all places in Oakland, California. So if you look at the signatory list of this 1978 statement, it's, it has an Oakland, California address. It's kind of cool. What good things like that happen in Oakland nowadays? I, I couldn't tell you. Um, it's our own backyard. So, that's the yeah, point of number one as to why nothing good is happening over there. All right. Um, but I mean, listen to some of the signatories on this list, you guys. These are. And this is, granted, you know, over 40 years ago now. So these were, you know, some of these guys were young guys at that time. But it has, you know, names like Francis Schaeffer, R.C. Sprawl, J.I. Packer, D.A. Carson, Robert Godfrey, Greg Bonson, John MacArthur, and even a number of people who aren't Calvinists. Uh, they probably are, though, since they're probably now in glory. So <laughs> they got that figured out. But in our catechism question, we haven't really touched on inerrancy yet. Uh, we haven't touched on sufficiency or infallibility either. And I would, I would make the case, because the, this statement on, is on inerrancy, uh, but I would make the case that the catechism also speaks to those three categories of God's word and how it concludes. So the second point for, in our outline is how it is that the word is the only certain rule of faith and obedience. And again, I mean, there would, there would be so much that we could really say here, but we're going to try to condense this into a few minutes here. 
I put the link to the Chicago Statement under this new section. In the last um, section, you could have actually referred to it back then because a lot of the affirmations in it, a lot of the articles in it are dealing directly with inspiration. But I put the web address for the statement again. Take a look at it on when you have time. It's helpful to you to see what these brothers agreed upon, and that has become a helpful statement to uh, point the church, to direct the church to orthodoxy over the last uh, four decades. So these things are actually related anyways. Um, what inspiration and then infallibility and sufficiency and inerrancy, you can't have one without the other. In the word of the catechism, for example, we might say it like this. It is because the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the Word of God that they are then the only certain rule of faith and obedience. So as we think of the Scriptures being the only certain rule of faith and obedience, let's try to think of it in light of sufficiency, inerrancy, and infallibility. So I'll, before I share a couple of articles from the Chicago Statement, let's first consider these doctrines. So first off, are the Scriptures sufficient? Now, the simple answer is yes, but it's, of course, more complex than that. Sufficient for what? Well, I would answer sufficient for all of life and godliness. In other words, the only certain rule of faith and obedience. And to say the scriptures are sufficient means that the Bible is all we need to equip us for a life of faith and service to God and to neighbor. It provides clear demonstration of God's intention to bring glory to his name and to restore the broken relationship between himself and creation through his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and through the gift of faith for the elect. And no other writings are necessary for this good news to be understood, nor are any other writings required to equip us for a life of faith. It is sufficient. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which we already read, is our go-to passage concerning sufficiency. Secondly, are the scriptures infallible? In other words, are they without error, without contradiction, without being wrong? And the answer is again, yes, it is without, they are infallible. Yes, they are without error, and specifically in the original manuscripts. But even the, the translations that we have today are absolutely trustworthy. Uh, they are from God, and we've already considered that. So then, if we think of it like this, since God is who he is, then everything from God must be as God is. Uh, the word of the Lord is perfect because God is perfect. God's not producing something that's less than himself in this regard, especially in the, in the sense that he's wanting to reveal himself. So turn to Psalm 19. This is one of my favorite psalms, actually. All right, we can play favorite psalms after this, I guess. <laughs> uh, Steve in the back, Psalm 110. All right, yeah. All right no. <laughs> Psalm 2. I heard that's what uh, Pastor James Coates preached on this morning. I heard. Oh, that was last week, I guess, actually. So Psalm 19. This is what it says about God's word. Look at verse 7. I'll read there. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Honeycomb. That's really hitting on all three, isn't it? On infallibility, inerrancy, and sufficiency. Is that our profession of, script, of the scriptures? Do we say amen to all of those statements? And if not, you know, why? You need to be thinking of that. And then applying all of that to what scripture teaches as well. Thirdly, are the scriptures inerrant? Inerrancy means that the scriptures do not affirm any errors. The Bible, in other words, does not endorse anything that is untrue. When it tells history, it tells what actually happened. Sometimes the Bible is uh, didactic, meaning that it instructs us. It gives us instruction on what to do, what not to do. Specifically, it instructs us in what is right to do. And sometimes it is descriptive, meaning that it just describes what happened. It just describes the good and the bad. And so you're not supposed to look at you know, those things that it describes and where it says that you know, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. What is that, didactive or descriptive? Descriptive, right? Yeah, don't go out and have many, many wives. We know that's not what, that's not what the Bible wants us to do. And so the Bible is inerrant. It tells of all of these things. In summary, the Bible is entirely truthful and has no errors at all in the original manuscripts that the prophets and the apostles actually wrote. Uh, we do not today possess those manuscripts, but what we have has stood the test of time and is trustworthy. And it's always fascinating, too, when we find an ancient manuscript. I mean, they just recently did in that weirdly sounded, was it called the Cave of Terrors or something ridiculous like that? It sounds like something out of a Disney movie. But it's you know, what they found there doesn't contradict what we have preserved. So let's look at a couple of these articles from the Chicago Statement, and then I'll wrap it up thinking of the specifics in the Catechism's wording. So this is the Chicago Statement. There's a couple of the articles that I think are speaking directly to Scripture being the only certain rule of faith and obedience. So Article 11 says, We affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that, far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters that it addresses. So it's the only rule. And then it says, we deny that it is possible for the Bible to be at the same time infallible and errant in its assertions. Infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished, but not separated. And why? Because, again, of divine inspiration, right? If it has come from God, then it, too, will be of you know, perfection. Then Article 12 says, We affirm that Scripture is in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. We deny that the biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that the scientific hypothesis about earth history may be properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. So the denial in Article 12 is interesting. It acknowledges that there are doctrines that people look to to explain Scripture. There are teachings, there are understandings which are outside of Scripture uh, in the fields of history and science, but it's clear to say that it rejects them as being necessary to faith and obedience. So it, it puts us back to what the Catechism is saying, that the Scriptures themselves, the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, are the only certain rule of faith and obedience. Uh, as Christians, we need to trust God's Word. Our, our worldview needs to be formed from it. Otherwise, otherwise we are in danger of being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. When Brother Ross was mentioning earlier in his prayer request about just the deceitfulness that is, that is abounding, do you know what's going to help you in that? 
It is God's word. It is a sure foundation, a source of truth by which you should, I mean, it should literally be the lens by which you look at the world through. It's the only way to truly understand what's happening in the world. And we can't garnish truth from creation itself because of our, our nature that's fallen. Uh, we can't look to the light of nature within ourselves. The scriptures, divine revelation, show us the rule of faith and obedience. Uh, we talked about knowledge and love this morning at length, actually. Uh, and Pastor Nick was saying, you know, knowledge isn't bad. Uh, you know, discernment, you need to be discerning. And the scriptures are where we would find that. And, and growing in knowledge isn't a bad thing either. It can puff up if, if ultimately the end goal is just about yourself and knowing things. But truly understanding what the scriptures teach should help us to know our Lord. And the more that we know our Lord, the more we may love him, the more that we may love of him, because we know more of him. And we know him in a greater capacity. So let's look really quick at the other verse that the Catechism cites, Ephesians 2.20. Okay. Ephesians 2.20. Maybe we'll read it a little bit more than that just for the context of it. Um, we'll start at 18. It says, For through him, for through Christ, we both, we both, meaning Jew and Gentile, and we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, so people who now have received Christ are united to God in faith. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So you see what it says. It says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Not, not the, their lives. It's not their lives. It's built upon the life of Christ and his teaching. Jesus is a cornerstone. But what is the foundation of the apostles and prophets? It's their teaching. It's what they taught, the substance of what they taught, what they received from God to then teach to the church. And how, how did they get the word of God? They were carried along by the Spirit to write what they wrote. You know, nothing else is like it. Nothing else is like this one book that is made up of 66 smaller books, uh, this, the scriptures, the Old and New Testaments. Lots more we could say on this topic, but that's, that's all the time we have for tonight. Um, do you guys have any questions or comments? We can make time for that. Yeah, I know we try to get done at 7.30, but go ahead, brother. Absolutely. 
Yeah, if you think about the complex matter in which the in which scripture was preserved, it was literally like John was saying, written down, copied by hand for generations, and then these letters would be circulated throughout the different churches and in the Old Testament and through different synagogues. Um, it was though, and there are some small differences. Uh, different, and like the very small. The thing to remember is um, that n- none of the differences that exist between some of these older manuscripts, none of them would change any doctrinal truths. They're just they're little spelling mistakes, uh, tense mistakes, things like that. None of them have impact on any of the eternal doctrines and truths that the Bible is teaching. That's miraculous of it in itself. If you think of most of our translations, they're based off of like two different groups of texts. And it's just, again, this is, it's complex. We don't have the time to get into all of these things, but there's, there's videos you can watch about, like, where do we get our Bible from? You can probably look up something on YouTube, even, to find something good on it. But, I, you know, there's usually, like, things that people call the majority text or the minority text, and there are slight variances from this, but most good translations, even, will will say, like, you know, they'll have a block of text. They'll say, it'll be in parentheses and say, this portion isn't found in the, you know, the majority text or the minority text. And... If you think about just the preservation of these things, even, I mean, what else compares uh, to, as far as ancient documents, is that is preserved in contrast to the Bible? It is, like, the the number of manuscripts, even though we don't have the originals, which I think is probably God's mercy. Can you imagine what people would do if they had these originally hand-penned, you know, they, they would be, people would be worshiping them. People would be falling down for them, wanting to touch them. I mean, Rome does this type of stuff already right now with, you know, how many different skulls of John the Baptist exist in those, like, uh, you know, those rectionaries that they have. So it's probably God's will that these original um, manuscripts are lost to us, but there are these copies that are very accurate and that are in vast agreement, which is just miraculous from a human standpoint. Barros? So I was going to comment that uh, based upon the, the proof text of tonight, Scripture is God-breathed, and it's all true. Um, Some of us, not all of us, have somebody in our lives that they know bits and pieces of the Bible, and they'll say, you know, that the Bible says this, and I believe that, but when it says that, I don't believe that. And their approach is that, is that they get to pick and choose yeah. what is right and what is not right, which is not right. And I, I hate to uh, pick and choosing. mathematics on this, but if you have that statement that um, all scripture is God breathed, and because from one who is perfect, and therefore all of Scripture is perfect and holy. The minute that you disagree with and choose to ignore uh, a Scripture, you can no longer refer to any other Scripture as having authority of God. Absolutely. So you have already decided for yourself what is true yeah. and what isn't. 
you undermine all of it in doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Like Thomas Jefferson when we took a tour of Monticello a couple years ago, and we learned that he clipped out all the passages of the Bible that he didn't like. And, you know, people refer to him as a Christian, others refer to him simply as a deist, one who believed uh, of God, but did not have saving faith. He didn't believe a good chunk of the Bible, and he cut it out. Did God really say? You know, it's just like that serpent in the garden. Um, Corinne? Sorry, Hannah. Oh, I just wanted to, to kind of review what yeah, you said yeah. earlier in regards to those two books of God. Uh-huh. The Book of Nature. The Book of Nature. And, and then the Divine Revelation, the Scriptures. Oh, okay. So, the Scriptures. The Bible. The Absolutely. But it's like with that sin, that, did that, I'm asking you, did that close that off? Yeah, so we have more time. So Roman, go read Romans 2 okay. in, more, in more depth, in more the surrounding verse around 2.15. Basically, Paul makes the point that Gentiles sometimes obey the law, even though they were never given the law. Yes. And why is that? It's because the work of the law is written on their hearts, because of the light of nature within them, this, this thing that makes up their humanity. Um, and so the reality is, though, from the book of nature, and so because people are fallen, we may be able to tell that there is a God, but even though the reality is we suppress that truth in unrighteous, right? That's Romans 1. But that knowledge isn't enough to be a redeeming knowledge. And that's what Ross was talking about last week, actually, too, in question three. So when you look at those two different books, I mean, the, the, reality, like the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, Psalm 14.1 says, you know, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Why is it foolish to say that? Because it's obvious. It's obvious there is a God. You look at the, Ross was talking about that, the complexity of, what, what was the example you were making of just the cells or something, right? Like, I remember what you were talking about last week about just how, how complex our bodies are. Like, what happened first? Did we get a heart first or did we get a brain? So, like, all of that stuff, like, it just testifies that there is a God. But... We especially can't know the things that pertain to salvation apart from special revelation, apart from God's word. So in nature, we might be able to discern that there is a God. We should. I mean, it's obvious. If any, unless anybody is so hardened in their conscience that they just want to say, oh, no, there is no God. But that's the, the, that's the impact of sin upon them. But people can't know. Even even as, you know, the, the, the best, most well-behaved, most, you know, lawful person separated from Christ um, – which, you know, is obviously a lost and a sinner damned to hell unless they receive Christ. That person is not able to look at nature and say, oh, I'm not, I realize I must need to be saved. I must need to be forgiven of sins. That only comes in God's word. Uh, specifically on that, uh, just with your intelligence, you can come to the conclusion that evolution is impossible. Absolutely. But... That might just lead you to be a creationist or a creationist.
Parisian scientist, but that doesn't mean you are the same person. That doesn't mean you believe God created everything ex nihilo. There's a wall it can't climb over because of sin. You would think of it like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah Steve? Yeah, I was saying, it's funny, like, even when you discuss with people who don't believe, well, they, they say they don't believe in God, you know, even they, they use the word in various ways. Like, you know, most of them will say, God has been corrupted. But they'll use that same text to say, look, when I prophesied Muhammad in these things, right? They'll use those same things. But, you know, it's funny, like, <laughs> talk about in Bible studies more. You know, like, uh, you get a lot of uh, atheists or whatever, they say, doesn't the Bible say don't judge? You know, it's like, go pick and choose. Even people who are not believers, even not, not even claiming to be, you know, they'll try to use it as, they understand the standard, right? Yeah. Because maybe they don't want to live by that standard, but that's why they know, hey, they'll say, well, doesn't the Bible say don't judge? They don't, they don't understand what they think they're saying. But they'll try to use that standard. Amen. It's spiritual warfare, isn't it? it? What that ultimately is, is twisting the scriptures, right? You're wanting to use them for your own purposes, your own goals. So you, you, you leave out this part, you affirm this part. Which, you're, is, exactly you're, which is exactly the deceiver. Yeah, it's his MO. So. Yeah. Doesn't it kind of like show you where you're at? Like you're just saying, oh, like, you choose to follow in the Bible. Like, like what you're spiritually yeah, definitely. It's, it's also, that's, when you think of like, so the main way we might think of it in today's culture is, you know, there's this movement, this, I guess you call it a movement, to, to affirm like homosexuality or transgenderism. And so those people who are doing that are most likely, you know, they're, they're wanting to justify that specific sin. And we were reading, I read this book with Stephen actually called On Maturity by um, Stephen, or by Sinclair Ferguson, I mean. And he talks about, you know, Paul has that thorn in the flesh. You know, Paulie writes about that, like, what exactly is that thorn in the flesh? He says, often what sometimes people do is they, they think about, it ends up being whatever is plaguing them. So, so you know, because I think we identify, he doesn't ever say specifically what it is, but it is some spiritual, you know, thing that is against him. And it maybe it's a physical ailment, we don't know. But often when people read it, they think, oh, well, I struggle with, you know, lust or I struggle with anger. So maybe that's what it is. But certainly that does happen too with them. Um, People just find their sins. Yeah, Raymond. You know, I was thinking too. Uh, I was thinking in my spirit, like, what's wrong with the with way God wants things? You know what I mean? And I used to struggle sometimes with the other day. I wanted to be somebody else. You know what I mean? I really did. And I'm thinking, I look in the mirror, and like, what's wrong with Raymond? You know what I mean? Like, why don't I want to be myself? You know? But now that you know, I have a different point of view, and I love myself now, literally, I do. And I, you know, and I'm crazy about you know what God is doing in my life. You know what I mean? I'm just so like, oh my God. You know? And I just want to thank God for that, you know, but I was like, what's wrong with the way God wants things, you know? Why do people just want to twist and turn and tell you, that's not a woman, that's a man, you know, that's why you want to say something like that. Yeah. And it's like, there's no fear, you know, nobody's scared of what he, he's the almighty, you know what I mean? Amen, so yeah. who are you to say that's a man, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, God gets to say that. Yeah. Right. So it's just confusion. 
Yeah, we are who God ordained us to be, but praise be to the Lord that we are new in Christ. We are better in Christ, right? So we should all find our identity, not so much even in ourselves, even our gender, whatever it is, but for us as Christians, in Christ. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's who we need. So, uh, yeah, we can't. It's just, it's almost like, just mind-blowing what is being said today about like trying to change people's genders like not putting genders on birth like doctors can't tell you if it's a boy or a girl at birth <laughs> what i don't it's like you just look you just look that's <laughs> i don't know so sometimes that's very rare yeah. Yeah. yes sir it's just like a weird thing like a big old list of like non-binary it's, that's a it's about dividing us, right? It's about being special, unique. And scripture's all about uniting us in Christ, yeah. too. So let's keep our eyes on Christ. Yeah, I don't really either. I don't know they do. If you're going to go all the way out. <laughs> there was that guy, I think when they first started this, that kid at Harvard, this was like years ago, before we were even at the place we were, he wanted to be identified as his Lord and Majesty. And so he was trying to have people call him his Lord and Majesty, and they were mad at him for that. But I, I can't imagine like how, um, I mean, Harvard today is just cesspool of immorality mm-hmm. and, and anti-God uh, putt. So. You've already seen that people get to decide. So. Right. Yeah, don't be mad. Just go with that, I guess. Anything else, guys? We're a little late. Thanks for staying and for engaging and for discussing. Um, next week, Lord willing, come back and consider Sunday evening question five, which we read together this morning. But let's pray, and then we could uh, spend some time talking to each other. Father in heaven, you are holy and good. We thank you for your word. It is a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. We know, though, that we can't understand it apart from the illumination that you provide, Holy Spirit. So please give us understanding of your word. Let our lives be built off of it. Let it be a rule in our lives. Help us to have such an understanding of it like that of the psalmist did in Psalm 19 and even Psalm 119. So many passages which explain the beauty of your word. It is your words are pure words like fire refined in a furnace, or silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. May you be glorified, Lord. Help us to know your word. Help us to believe your word. Help us to trust your word, for you are good, and your word is a good revelation, perfect revelation of who you are. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.